the. <laughs> Start starting and ending every show that way. That way you can run them all together like a like a Pink Floyd album. <laughs> My obnoxious. Uh... Hello. Paper flippies. Yep. Could it be today, guys? Could today be the day? Of reckoning? Of reckoning? Could it be that we're going to do a short discussion about one of the greatest films ever made? It could be. It could be that day. But me? Why? I wouldn't even hurt a fly. <laughs> <laughs> you alright, love? Yeah, I was just... You uh, with me? <laughs> I didn't... There's a lot of stuff in here, so I didn't really get to read the back end, because I only get an hour lunch break, so I was like, ah, is there anything of significance in here? <laughs> just trying to figure out... There's a lot to talk about. Oh, yeah, I know we can go for out. it all day. You know why that is? Welcome to the Nightmare Box, presenting Mistakes Were Made. My name is Brett Bloom. I'm sitting across in the beautiful, the effervescent, the fresh off the day job that she hopefully one day will never have to work again. Kristen, motherfucking Bloom. <laughs> Did you push that back towards me? I pushed that towards no, you for a reason. No, I was pulling a fuzzy off the yeah. microphone. Um, <laughs> and we're here to bring you yet another edition no. of the tumultuous, the tremendous. No. <laughs> that is not what it's called. I will fight you. Whatever the Tuesday is, it's that Tuesday. And we're here to talk about motherfucking psycho. Ha, 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 ha. 1960. I was going to say 1960s. Yeah, not the Vince Vaughn. Which, when we went to go watch this, I have both editions. I have, and uh, one of the DVDs said special edition. And I said, there's no way that that's the 1990 version of Psycho. And then I popped it in and I was like, why is it in color? Why is Vince Vaughn on my television set? This is the wrong movie. It does not deserve a special edition. <laughs> but in the future, maybe, you know, a few months down the line, I'm going to sit you down and make you watch the Vince Vaughn one. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be super disappointed. It is a shot for shot, line for line remake. It is a literal copy in color, and I can't remember the name of the woman who plays Marion, but she's a very famous actress, and Vince Vaughn plays Norman Bates. I feel like part of the charm of this is, besides you know how well it's done, is that it's in black and white, though. I yeah. feel like the fact that it's in color yeah. takes away something from it. It does. The shower scene is disturbing, because <laughs> it's like I, it takes away the beauty that we can get into later of limiting shots that Hitchcock, you know, was known for there. Mm. Do they show the the knife that doesn't go into anything? <laughs> I think in the so colors? because I think it's a, a held true shot for shot. <laughs> so like every single thing that Hitchcock did, they did, but it's in color and because right. it's in color it takes away the whole reason Hitchcock shot it the way that he shot it. Like he knew the limitations. There was color film in nineteen sixty. Uh, he chose to we'll do it in, in black and we'll white. We'll get into why he chose to do it in black and white. <laughs> it wasn't an intentional choice, but it was not for the reasons that I think so. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, let's hop into it, love. Where would you like to get started? Uh, I figured we could talk about um, kind of where the character of Norman Bates comes from because you did a Oh, you don't paper. want to do the regular? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We, we do have to do that, don't we? <laughs> I was like, we're not going to do a deep dive into the film as far as like explaining the plot because this movie, if you haven't seen it, it's fucking 80 years old. So I'm not good at math, but that's close. 60 years old? 
Sure. 60? Yeah. <laughs> 61? Um, it's a senior citizen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. It, we should definitely go over the usual stuff. Um, so, yeah. 1960s Psycho. Um, directed and produced by Mr. Alfred Hitchcock. Oh, my God. Um, since this film is from the 60s, I didn't bother um, looking up stuff other or these mm-hmm. people had done other than this because a lot of them had started to and a lot of more like older movies where I was like, yeah. I don't think people are really going to know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about anyway. So, yeah. So made this film in 1945. <laughs> you have to special order it in a gift box set. But because it is such a well-done movie, I feel like these people just deserve mention. Mm-hmm. So directed and produced by Alfred Hitchcock. The screenplay was by Joseph Stefano, mm-hmm. but it's based on a book called Psycho by Robert Block. Robert Block. Um, the infamous soundtrack uh, <laughs> is by Bernard Herrmann or Herman. Mm-hmm. I might be butchering some of these. Cinematography was by John L. Russell. This was edited by George Tomasini <laughs> and produced by Shamley Productions, which is a production company owned by or was owned by Hitchcock. I don't know if he nice. owned it to his dying day, but at the I time that this movie was one. made, he owned it. <laughs> I think he did it like Nightmare Box. Like, he just declared it as a production company and was like, fuck it. <laughs> well, that's one of my topics for later today, but we'll get into that. I'm going to um, learn stuff about my favorite movie today. <laughs> the budget was a meager $806,947. Today's money? Box office. Uh, I don't know how they do these, to be honest. I don't know if it's... I'm assuming it's, it's money it's at the time. probably today's money if it's 860000 so that was probably like 86 that i don't know i, I don't, don't have know. a calculator I, I, I assume whenever we do these it's based on money the for time. the time because yeah they well, i don't know i don't have a justification for that i just assume <laughs> box office 50 million buck yeah he made back his money tenfold <laughs> <laughs> they made it back tenfold he changed the landscape of american cinema with this movie because of the restrictions that he put onto the film uh, which are pretty well known but he had a very strong policy of no late admission so it created this concept where america finally respected film to the point where you'd show up early get in the line have the ticket in hand sit there from beginning to end you don't leave halfway through you don't show up halfway through you don't talk about it outside of the theater before this no such thing as the spoiler alert (laughs) (laughs) hitchcock had such a great marketing campaign with this movie i'm not surprised he fucking blew the goddamn doors open (laughs) um we're not gonna list all the characters just because there are only a handful of characters that are really relevant to the story but do you want to the legendary Anthony Perkins, who I am, I've got a, when I find new people that I'm interested in, I've known about Anthony Perkins, obviously I've seen this movie like 10 times, but um, I found out that there's a biography based on his life that I'm really interested to read. And he plays one of the greatest characters in horror history, Norman Bates. (laughs) Who's Norman? He's the owner of the hotel. <laughs> Normally you're like, and he's our main character. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He is our main character. People, <laughs> listen, this, practice. this film blows our fucking format wide open because you know who the fuck Norman Bates is, just like you know Marion Crane, played by Janet Lee. Um, This is the only person I have a semi-fun fact on because, mm-hmm. like I said, I started to look up movies uh, these people had done throughout their careers, and most of them were like, 
old movies, even yeah. though they were successful, that I was like, eh, people aren't going to know what I'm talking <laughs> about. Uh, Janet Leah. I think Leah? it's just Lee. Lee? I don't know. Um, was in Halloween H2O. Wow. She played a character named Norma. I didn't know that. Have you seen H2O? It's been a while, but yeah. yeah. I think that's the one that has Busta Rhymes where they're doing the reality <laughs> show. <laughs> Jamie um, Lee Curtis is like, why are you doing a reality show in Michael's house? And then Michael <laughs> just starts stabbing everybody. But I just thought that was funny. I have no idea who Norma is in the film yeah. because I haven't seen that film in quite a while. But I was like, oh, she played a character named Norma. You know why that's interesting? Because on the flip side, we've got Sam Loomis, who some of you may recognize the name, not from this movie, but from Halloween. He plays the detective uh, or the doctor later in the Rob Zombie remakes, who is after Michael Myers. I think he might have actually been Michael's doctor in the originals as well. He wasn't a detective. I take that back. Sam Loomis, played by John Gavin. He's uh, Marion Crane's boyfriend. Yeah. And then you got Lila Crane. Played by Vera Miles. And that's Marion's sister. And then honorable mention on the other side of your page. Honorable mention on the other side of my on page. On the other side of that page. On the other side of this page. Because you can't. That oh, page is blank. Just kidding. On the other side of that page. <laughs> on the other side of the original page I was going for, that's blank too. Uh, Virginia Gregg. Oh, Paul Jasmine. Jeanette Nolan are the voices of Norma Mother Bates. Um, Gat says all three voices were used interchangeably except for the last speech, which was performed by Virginia Gregg. Mm. And I believe, if I'm remembering right, Virginia Gregg was a radio actress. Like, she did a lot of voice stuff. Is that why we get, like, the weird tempo to the voice? Because we have one male and two females here to where we get that, like, scratchy, bassy... Do you think they set all the same lines together and they mashed it all up? No, I think... Pulled individual words? Yeah, I think each character just did different sections depending on what they needed. Hmm. Um, I did not do further research on that. It's okay. So, not positive. This is not one of our future episodes where you guys are going to have to pay for the holy deep dives. (laughs) (laughs) Synopsis? Um, yeah, uh, if anybody's not seen this movie, I'm not spoiler and alerting this shit for you. Uh, it was made in the yeah, 60s. exactly. Norman Bates, um, runs this hotel. Technically his mother does, but that's kind of the point. Um, Marion Crane steals $40,000, which was a shitload of money in 1960. It's still kind of a shitload of money, but it's not enough to like take off and run away for the rest of your life on. I wouldn't be mad if somebody gave me 40000 Yeah, and she's running to her lover's arms, her lover Sam Loomis, who she's wrapped up in an affair with. Um, so she takes the forty k. she runs, she kind of gets a little lost about 15 miles away from the town that Sam lives in. And uh, stops in a hotel and bad idea, Marion. Shower scene. Um, Then Sam and Lana, was it? The sister's name? Lila? Lila. Lila. Yep, Sam and Lila uh, go on the hunt to try to figure out who did it. Arbogast is there. We didn't mention him, but Arbogast is the private detective that's also looking for Marion Crane. Wait, wait, wait. That's played by... Martin Balsam? Sure. It's Milton Arbogast. Oh, yeah. Arbogast has a troubling um, descent down a flight of stairs that is hilariously shot. And um, then we find out that Mother has been dead this whole time. She's in the basement. Norman is a at times described as a transsexual, at times described as a person with disassociative personality disorder. And then he'll never hurt her fly again. 
<laughs> and then they made sequels that I've never seen, but now it's my mission to watch the sequels. Oh, God, no. <laughs> uh, they apparently did not do well. That was no. the thing I was reading. Not directed by Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, Hitchcock was dead. They waited until after he was dead to make those. Um, and so... then he rumbled so hard in his grave when those films were made that it caused all the triumph and tribulation that we are in right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, like I tried to earlier, um, let's begin at the beginning. Love is that what we're Yeah, because um, Norman is loosely based on a real person. Yep. Um, and I'd kind of like to dive into that a bit. Yeah. Where does the concept of Psycho and Norman Bates come from? The world's greatest uh, upholstery enthusiast. <laughs> he liked making lamps with skin. <laughs> he had a belt made of nipples. He <laughs> dug up his own mother, filleted her skin off of her body, and used to dance in the skin in the pale, pale moonlight. And his name was Ed Gein. He lived in Wisconsin. In Wisconsin. In Plainfield, I believe, is the name of the town. Uh, it says both... Or it says Gein lived 64 kilometers, which is 40 miles from, from Block. From, yeah, that's Block? the author of the novel, Robert Block. So, oh. Yeah, he found the... If I remember correctly, because a lot of you guys will know if you've listened to the show for a while, I wrote this massive paper comparing... Game to Norman and like how we mold in our real world monsters to create these beautiful creatures on the screen. And he read about it like in his um, like local paper where it was very tabloid at the time. Nobody understood the actual details. And so there was this larger than life version of Ed Gein. And at the time, if I remember, Robert Block was writing dime store mystery novels and he wasn't having a lot of success. And his story is very fucking tragic because of Alfred Hitchcock. <laughs> Does nobody know who he is because everybody remembers Hitchcock? Everybody remembers the movie, but you're going to hear about a payout that they gave to Robert Block. Um, and then keep in mind, when you hear the number of the payout, the budget of the film, and the total success of the film, and realize that the initial author never saw a goddamn dime of that. There's a reason, though. Yeah. No, there's a great reason, but if, as an author, you're like, I wrote this novel, and the novel's good. I mean, if you're interested in like a different kind of take on Norman, um, because in the novel, he's like an overweight alcoholic. He, mm. He's a lot less relatable than Anthony Perkins's performance of him as like a boyish uh, guy, like in his mid to late 20s, early 30s. In the novel, you don't like Norman. <laughs> He's not a likable character. Apparently, in the novel, too, um, which we can get into that later, but... I haven't read the novel in, like, four years, so... I, I've never read yeah. it. Um, but apparently, in the novel, um, Loomis and Marion's sister kind of strike up a bit of an affair as well, <laughs> and... Um, Hitchcock was like, yeah, we're leaving that out, because that just makes the character seem kind of cheap, and yeah. they wanted to keep the film about the mystery they were trying to solve. Yeah, Hitchcock basically cut all the fat out of Block's novel and created the film. But how much money was Block paid for the concept? I don't want to I don't want to divulge that at this okay. exact moment okay. because it's related to yeah, Don't let I me get too later. excitable because <laughs> I love this fucking Cuz there there's a reason why it worked out the way that it worked out. Not to say that Hitchcock couldn't have gone back later and paid this guy some of the money <laughs> it earned. They're like, "Hey, it turns out we made 50 million dollars. Here's um, at least 50,000." <laughs> but there is kind of a reason it worked out the way that it worked out though. Yeah. To Hitchcock's credit. 
Um, but anyway, Gein and Bates. I just want to read this little blurb before we kind of dive oh, into I'm this. Sorry, I I'm sorry I got away from that. <laughs> I think this is interesting. Um, it says both, uh, which they refer to as Norman as the protagonist of the story. I guess maybe, <laughs> technically. Um, but it says both Gein and Bates were solitary members in an isolated r- rural location. Mm-hmm. Both had deceased domineering mothers. Both had sealed off a room in their home as a shrine to her. Mm-hmm. Both dressed in women's clothes. However, and I think this is interesting, Gein is not strictly considered a serial killer. He only killed two people. He only killed two people. Yep. Uh, the, the horrors of Ed Gein were his nightly trips to the graveyard, where he would look for freshly dug graves and then dig them up the next night. And then refill the grave in the middle of the night, bring the body or parts of the body or effects of the body back to his house. And that's where he made his art. So you know a lot more about Gein than I do. Tell us about Gein. Like, who did he kill? Um, what did he do? I can't remember the names of his victims. I know that... Um, people in his town? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There were women that liked him. Because uh, he was very isolated, obviously. He had these weird... Um, moments where he would bring kids to the house and he would show them the artifacts that he had made and they all just thought he was the creepy guy up the head uh, up the way that he would show them sunken uh, shrunken heads and he would go yeah these are from you know ethiopia these shrunken heads or whatever the fuck and they would later turn out to be the actual face masks he'd cut off the corpses i'm gonna sneeze (laughs) (laughs) oh Well, now it just sounds like I'm laughing about <laughs> face masks being cut off corpses. I, had to, I said I was going to sneeze. I yeah. was going to edit out But the he sneeze. was known as like a loner. People in the town would make fun of him because they thought he was gay because he had like these weird issues with women. But like there were these two motherly type characters that were in his life. And he wound up killing the first one. I can't remember how. But the second one uh, had some sort of a store that sold uh, rifles. And it was opening day of hunting season when he kills the second one. So this little town is bereft of men. They're all gone. There's nobody in town except Ed Gein and like a handful of women just going about being, you know, 1950s housewives. And so he goes to this store and he buys, I believe, a box of ammunition and something for the house, leaves the receipt there, goes out to the car, puts his stuff away, loads his 22 rifle up with one bullet, shoots her in the head, takes her back home. And when the men come back into town, they go to the store, the doors are locked up, there's a blood stain across the floor, there's a twenty two shell on the ground and a receipt that leads them to Ed Gein. Wow. Ed is eventually, or rather very quickly, almost lynched by the town. Now, is he the one that was friends with the cops, or am I thinking of somebody else? Uh, most of them are friends with the cops, but you're probably thinking of Edmund Kemper, who used yeah. to hang out in the cop bars. Yeah, that's Yeah, Gein was very isolated, and like when they caught him, he just surrendered. They He wound up dying in a mental institution. Like, Did there's he... something pretty about him in the way that... He doesn't have this self-aggrandizement. He's very much like Norman in that he thought that his mother was still alive. He could still hear her voice in his head. Like, he just didn't understand what he was doing or why they were upset that he was desecrating corpses. Did he kill his own mom or did he just keep her body? Mm -mm. No, but he, um, I don't know. I don't even know if he kept her body. I think he just kept part of her skin. Is he the one who... Nope, that's also Kemper. Okay. <laughs> I'm confusing my serial That's why I'm asking you. 
Yeah, Kemper's the one. Kemper's the one who. He's not the one who had the fancy belt. Throat fucked is no. He's the one with the fancy belt. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, the the nipple belt is all Ed Gein. He had skin lamp shades. Um, He did lock off the entirety of the house. The rest of the house was completely destroyed because he lived on a diet of like pork and beans, and so like the whole place was littered and covered in cockroaches. But he like walled off his mother's room, and when they walked in there, it hadn't been touched since she died. But it is debatable that he killed his own brother. Nobody's ever been able to figure that out. His brother died in a rush, a brush fire that they were trying to put out of potentially blunt force trauma to the back of the head. So hmm. His dad, I believe, uh, lost his... If I don't want to dive into that because I don't know if that's accurate. Uh, but his dad was very abusive. Um, his mother was extremely mentally abusive. Uh, screamed shit about, you know, little boys with penises or barrette to go to hell and (laughs) so he had this weird disassociation with himself Mm. and then when his mother died his only view of the world died with her and he fell completely out of it do you know because it says he dressed in women's clothes do you know whether or not he dressed in his mom's clothes as well i know he dressed in her skin he had a skin suit that he would put on that had breasts attached to it and he would dance out in his backyard. That's the lotion on the skin. Well, he's also a major influence for Silence of the Lambs for that very reason. The whole concept of um, Buffalo Bill making a skin suit comes from Ed Gein. He's also the inspiration for Leatherface. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So, and this is going to kind of bleed into the next topic I want to talk about as well. What do you think is more likely to keep people up at night. Like we invent these crazy mm-hmm. horror films, like some of the ones you were just talking yeah. about where you see all these really horrible, unimaginable things done. And then some of them are based off of real life characters who yeah. have to some extent done some of these things. Like, do you think the depravity of the human imagination is scarier or what? these things are based off of like the real events and like the real mm-hmm. people because it is something that actually happened is th- more terrifying the real event a thousandfold because <laughs> my job as a writer if i'm writing a horror film is to take something that's real in the world and then dial that up you know go but isn't that the but, point though you're supposed to make it scary but the difference the yeah but the difference between me and a person like richard ramirez is i'm not actually doing it to anybody nobody is hurt <laughs> no. that guy came up with that idea no. all on his lonesome <laughs> i don't mean are you more terrifying i mean so i'm, I'm not no saying... story-wise i yeah. get what you're saying yeah like i'm not What's saying scarier... no one's ever read the news and then had nightmares about real things that have yeah. happened in the news but it's normally the movies we watch that cause us to, like, toss and turn at night with bad mm-hmm. dreams or, like, the stories we read or whatever. Like, I don't think I've ever read a news article or seen a news, like, report on the TV and then had a nightmare. But I've definitely had nightmares about movies Films I've watched. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think it depends then, like, highly upon your proximity to the actual thing that's happening. Because it's very easy, especially in, like, the internet age, to read a story and give yourself some distance. School shootings are horrendous, mm-hmm. right? But here in America, uh, pre-COVID, ironically, um, maybe not so much because all the kids are learning at home now, but um, there became so many shootings around 2019 that 
it was like, I don't care. You know, like not, that sounds very callous, but it's not, it's not Columbine when Columbine happened. And when that happened, it changed the fucking world. You know, it's not the Virginia Tech shooting. It's, they bleed into, well, that's just a part of the culture now. So I think you're not in the classroom the first time a school shooting really goes down at Columbine. You're never going to be able to understand that level of fear. But I can make a movie <laughs> that'll scare the fuck out of the nation. Mm. Am I making sense? Then? Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that's kind of my... I don't have a side. Like, I, I don't genuinely yeah. know which one I think is more terrifying. Cause Saw, I think, is terrifying because James Wan has all those thoughts in his head and they're not based on anybody. <laughs> <laughs> We're just happy that he found writing instead of, you know, like a, a an abandoned warehouse where he could live out that sick shit. <laughs> well, like, I, I guess that's the thing that I think is curious is, like, obviously, factually, the real-life events are way more traumatic yeah. and way more worse because they did really happen. But then you watch movies based on these things and like Norman himself mm-hmm. in this movie and Psycho really isn't in present day a scary movie just because yeah. it's a bit of a dated movie. But I, I think there's an odd intimacy that you don't get from like news reports and stuff like that so like we're lured Mm -hmm. in to get to know this character and get to think this character's charming and this character is a nice guy and then it's like oh this character's crazy so it's it's a weird toying with your emotions and art that you don't well you get the backstory you get Mm -hmm. a way for the audience to sympathize with the killer in the Mm -hmm. situation i think the closest that we get to it really and again this is going to sound callous if you're not a hardcore serial killer enthusiast like your boy um retroactively you get it with Dahmer. you get a level of understanding you no justification nothing that he did was right or justified it should never have occurred for sure it's a failure of us as a society um to understand both mental mental health issues and homosexuality like he falls in this weird he just wanted a boyfriend in wisconsin <laughs> wisconsin's where all the killers come from maybe not wisconsin <laughs> uh milwaukee um so like it happens retroactively with Dahmer, but like nobody else, you know, I don't feel any sympathy regardless of how hard Charles Manson's life was, uh, for the crimes he committed or, you know, in recent memory, Richard Ramirez, nothing. I mean, he had a horrific upbringing, but it doesn't justify what he did. Yeah. It happens with Gein. It happens with Dahmer and it happens with Norman because there's this level of innocence inside of the violence it's not a ted bundy you know dragging you up into the woods to have sex with your corpse ed's looking for his mom norman's looking for his or to obey his mom and Dahmer's trying to create a gay sex robot lovely imagery (laughs) yeah again no justification what they did was horrific (laughs) no that's interesting though wasn't bundy known to kind of be like a charmer though Mm -hmm. so like, I know those type of people exist in real life, obviously, but I don't know. Like, I think that's intriguing how, um, this is a bit off topic, but, um. It's all right. I'm very excited about the film, so <laughs> kind of rein me in where need be. Uh, I think it's called The Strangers. I can't remember what the movie's called. where you sit on your hand and then beat yourself up. No. Um, 
I think it's called The Strangers. I know Liv Tyler's the main actress in it, but it's a movie about uh, this couple and like some random girl like rings on their doorbell and then mm-hmm. the whole rest of the night basically um, they're trying to avoid being killed by these people that are trying to break into their house. Is that house. the people with like the wolf masks and the crossbows? <clears throat> I don't think so. Okay. I don't know. Maybe they did have masks on. I don't remember. But um, the end of the movie, basically, the two of them were strapped to chairs in their own home and mm-hmm. about to be stabbed to death. And like that seems like a really horrifying story. And they start <laughs> the movie off like, oh, based on true events. The true events that it were based on was there was just a series of break-ins in the neighborhood of the guy that wrote it. Yeah, you can it's go not very, remotely. <laughs> very vague with true events. Yeah. It's not remotely yeah. related to what the story ended up being. Texas said. Chainsaw just... Massacre never happened. People have been killed in Texas is about as much. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that's always fascinating, like how... Which I guess that's true of real killers, too. Um, they just act out. The dark thoughts they're yeah. thinking, but like how dark the human mind can get. <laughs> oh, incredibly goddamn dark. If you want to read some shit that will blow your mind, The Anatomy of Evil is um, a book that I plug to people who are interested in um, degrees of depravity because they break down 22, I think it is, or 23 um, gradations of how fucked up you can be. And number one is still pretty fucked up. Number 22 is like, those people should just be murdered as babies. <laughs> we, we need to come up with a way to detect them. <laughs> you mentioned... Like Richard is like number 15, by the way. There's like a whole other, you know, almost half of the book where it's like, oh, you thought that was bad. No. <laughs> there are people who boil people alive so they can eat them. Yeah. Anyway. The Nazis um... are not number 22. <laughs> <laughs> so you mentioned... Um, with movies, you get the backstory and you get to know the person, so you develop sympathy. So, another question for you. Do you feel like having um, something like Bates Motel, which granted this is decades down the road, where you actually really get an inside look at the character and how the character got here, Mm -hmm. do you think that enhances the story do you think that takes away from the shock of the initial incident like how do you think that affects this film in particular Mm -hmm. having viewed the film from the perspective of never having seen Bates and then having or Bates Motel and then having seen Bates Motel and now going back and watching this movie so it's it's kind of you know a crisscross question why am I talking in tongue twisters today? Uh, for the both of us, really, because you haven't seen Psycho in forever. Mm. And I watched it religiously throughout college to write that paper. So, like, I... My same complaint, I think, on Bates Motel. They should have just introduced Marion Crane at the very end of that series. And, and then, up yeah. With the movie. And then been like, all right, youngins, <laughs> all you, you know, 15, 16 year olds out there, because I believe it was a it wasn't a Netflix original. I think it was a cable show. Um, they should have Marion Crane should have pulled into the parking lot, honked the horn. And then we get maybe even a black and white of Norman running down the stairs and then fade to black because Norman in Bates Motel does a brilliant job of developing this backstory we never really get in Psycho. Um, But if you knew all of that going into the movie, then you lose the shock value that comes post 
the trap sequence, which is my favorite thing that's ever happened next to the coin toss. <laughs> His whole monologue about being born into a trap that he can't escape mm-hmm. is the first time that you would have seen that character show signs that he's not all the way there. Yeah. I, yeah, I, do, I do think having a prequel... Oh, it's my bad. A prequel to this film in particular does take away from the impact of the film as a standalone, for sure. Like, you mm-hmm. don't get the big reveal of mom's in the basement. <laughs> mom's and dead. Then... <laughs> Norman's not all there. <laughs> yeah, and you, and you don't get... Um, yeah, just, I guess, the shock of, like, realizing, oh, you've been tricked kind of the whole time. Yeah, because she's not really in the window she's dead she's not being carried down the stairs she's Mm. dead she didn't murder the girl in the shower she didn't run down the stairs and kill albacost or (laughs) arbacrast or rbs i'm sorry beer (laughs) beer and excitement (laughs) i do i do like though um i yeah i agree i don't think the like the TV series is kind of a interesting little standalone yeah. on its own because they do take a different route and maybe they took a different route because they were worried that it wouldn't be received well if they tried to just create a prequel mm-hmm. to uh, such a famous movie. But I, I do kind of wish they had ended with the Marion bit and it had literally just been a prequel. Yeah. Um, and I, I do kind of enjoy getting to know Norma's character because from the movie by that's itself, the, yeah, that's the best part of the TV show is actually learning about his love for his mother yeah. and why. Yeah, yeah, and like from the movie perspective, all you get is this really harsh, horrible mother figure. Mm-hmm. And we don't learn why Norman stays, why Norman puts up with it, why Norman is the way that he is. And then, like, the only thing that they explain about the mother is she killed her lover and herself. And, or no, Norman killed them. No, it was a a suicide. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she killed her lover and herself. Um, And I don't even remember why. I don't know if the lover was leaving her or what the deal (laughs) with that was. Um... And then, yeah, Norman's just kind of there by himself. And, like, you don't really get to see the emotional breakdown of Norman that you get to see in the TV series. you get no love from, quote-unquote, mother up in the house. She's constantly screaming at him and berating him. Yeah. And And then Marion corrects her, and then he kills Marion. (laughs) Yeah, and with the TV series, which even leading up to getting to Marion, there's some kind of weird plot asides that don't really need to happen. Mm -hmm. But you at least get this development of they're very close. All they have is each other. Like, she can be kind of crazy, but she also really loves him. And when she ultimately dies, you get to see the snap, like, in him. And, like, I enjoy that because then you have a bit more, like, compassion for both characters like you have compassion for dead mom in the basement yeah and you also have compassion for norman who at this point has completely yeah. lost it and doesn't even like acknowledge that he's killing people and you also get to see the snap and romero and his brother and mm-hmm. yeah, i've already forgotten all the character routes but... and I, I really liked that angle better of norman having killed his own mother than yeah. mother suicided herself and her lover um because there's, 
like something poetic about Norman trying to break away from his mom. By killing her physical form. Yeah, yeah. but then still being trapped there because she's now permanently mentally a part of him. Mm-hmm. So I, I like the poetry of that, but yeah, it does... Like, the big reveal at the end of the movie is a huge part of why the movie is so compelling, yeah. for sure. So, I don't know. It's it's interesting. <laughs> I think each has their own, like, unique upsides. Hitchcock didn't have five seasons to explain this story. He had what we, shockingly, because I don't think I've ever realized it, is a almost two-hour film that I always thought was like it an hour and 20 short. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it seemed very short. King of pacing, Alfred Hitchcock. Way to bring the tension in. Um, yeah, it's like an hour and 48 or something like that. And it went by like that, even today. <laughs> it's like a magic trick. Like I, He didn't have as long. But can you imagine, briefly, Hitchcock Alive today has that time. If you gave Hitchcock six hours, I think he would break film. <laughs> and I, I, if I'm being honest, I don't think... You don't think that's where his strength would I don't lied? think he nailed this movie 100% either. Oh, no. I, like, I, watching it, felt... Which, granted, it's a movie from the 60s, so I'm watching it from the perspective of 2021. I felt a bit like it was almost... For the meat, like the center part of the movie, like watching um, Psycho is way better. So I'm not saying they're comparable as far as how good the movie is, Mm -hmm. but they made a movie of the board game Clue. What? Yeah. (laughs) And so up front at the beginning of the movie, um, I think somebody gets killed. And then the whole rest of the movie is the whodunit. Yeah. As in the board game clue. Yeah. And then you get to the big reveal at the end, which Psycho is obviously a much better movie and much better done. But it felt a bit like that. Like the whole middle part of the movie is we know it's Norman, but it's still a bit of a whodunit. Well, the audience wasn't supposed to know that the shower scene was Norman. True. That's why he rushes in. Mother, what have you done? You know, we know that now. So the audience in 1960 would have been like, oh, my God, his mother's snapped. Not he's snapped. You know, you're supposed to find out that Norman is not all there and that there might be something up around the time that Arbogast comes into the picture. Because he starts finding things that don't make sense. And it's very... um, explanatory in the way that it's delivered Mm -hmm. especially the third act like the very final scene well he's just a homosexual who's Mm. (laughs) obsessed with his mother he has yeah Yeah. it wraps it up very shakespearean at the end and i think for me which again it's an older movie and that was probably a bit more standard back then but i I think the concept is brilliant. The action sequences minus the tumbling down the stairs (laughs) are brilliant. Um, And the acting, Mm -hmm. for the most part, is incredibly well done. But I I, I think because it's so heavy driven on there is a mystery we have to solve. Like, some stuff gets lost in translation. Like, I Mm -hmm. don't ultimately feel for... Norman or his mother or Marion or Sam or anyone the way that I do in Bates Motel because we don't yeah. spend time with the characters as much as we spend time trying to figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And so throughout this, do you entire... think that's a fault in killing Marion right up top? No, I, I think it's a, a fault in developing character over plot. Like we don't, hmm. I don't ever at any point feel like Sam actually cares that Marion is dead. at all. Yeah. He's actually kind of hitting on Marion's sister the entire time that they're well, making they, the fucking. They film. say they purposely try to avoid that because that was the original story yeah. that him and the sister kind of end up being a thing or whatever. But yeah, he seems incredibly indifferent mm-hmm. to his girlfriend being dead, who they were talking about wanting to get married. Yeah. And yeah, the Arbogast seems more interested in Marion's well-being <laughs> than anyone, to be honest. Even the sister doesn't seem as tore up as I would expect. And then, I don't know. Like, like I would have liked to have seen more of Norman's vulnerability and more of Sam's vulnerability yeah. and just like a bit more intimacy well, to in the characters. In the 60s, I guess it was difficult for men to be vulnerable on the screen. I mean, that's a brand new concept, you know. Right now, they're trying to take down Psycho with, you know, the potato head and whatever the fuck else is happening in the world. Um, and this is something I want to save for the very end, as we do in the big films, portrayal of women um, in film back then. But the vulnerability breaks through in my favorite scene in the entire movie, the the sandwich. They're just eating a sandwich and having a conversation. And it's a mesmerize, mesmerizing performance. <laughs> between I feel like Norman and Marion had the a great deal of chemistry out of everyone. <laughs> I yeah. guess that's all I'm trying to say. I'm trying to defend my film here. I agree with you watching it again after all the films that we've watched together the chemistry is wonky with literally everybody else but mm-hmm. Marion and Norman on screen together is some of the most heartfelt heartbreaking like she's giving him advice about like you need to get away from that crazy bitch what are you doing <laughs> mm-hmm. and like i would have seen, loved to have seen even if it wasn't vulnerability just more interactions between norman and mother yeah. like we i remembered mother being in so much more of the movie <laughs> like i literally she's in the window twice and she's in the basement once <laughs> oh i remember <laughs> her talking more not necessarily her physical presence i remember her voice being in way more of the movie and yeah, for some reason I remember there being way more killings than there ended up being. And I'm fine with just two people dying That's, and that's all that it. died in the game case. Do you think that was on purpose? Probably. Well, they said, <laughs> they said he had also killed two other people, so technically yeah. they acknowledge he's killed four. But yeah, I, I, I think this is a movie, which is something we've talked about uh, lately with the books that we're reading, um, that plot took the front seat and mm-hmm. I don't think plot should take the front seat like the premise is incredibly interesting but the plot to the premise is not the most interesting thing yeah plot is almost unnecessary yeah characters should move by themselves in your film yeah and i i feel like sam going to the house and yelling for arbogast and Norman standing at the lake and then him going back to find the sister and then the two of them going to the house together. There's like a lot of plot <laughs> The motion. cop following Marion for no reason yeah. for like 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, like I didn't honestly really need to see that she switched yeah. out her car. The cop saw that she switched out her car. So if the cop needed to watch her switch out the car, why didn't he follow her in her new switched out car? He knows what car she switched out to. <laughs> yeah, I would have been fine if we were trying to build tension with the cop being in the rear view for way too long. 
Marion taking an exit and the cop going on, and then we kind of yeah. get that relief of the tension. Like, that whole, like, trading out the car thing was kind of unnecessary, in my opinion. And there's just a lot of, like, plot movement that doesn't need to be happening mm-hmm. for the story to happen. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's my... I, I don't think Hitchcock needed more time. I think the story needed more focus on the characters. Yeah. but Which is ironic because it feels like it goes by in a blast. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't know how to really... we got to watch it again tonight. No. We'll, we'll do a follow-up. <laughs> Next Tuesday with Psycho Part 2. <laughs> but I can't completely fault Hitchcock because... This was a passion project that he really wanted to get done that really almost did not get done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, and by the way, if you guys want to deep dive into like the history of this film, I believe Wondery or Spotify Studios did one on... plug other people's shows. No, no, no. Just for like research purposes. They, they did a really good mm-hmm. deep dive into like the making of Psycho, not so much the plot and everything afterward. So Hitchcock really really wanted to make this movie. Yeah. He had had two other projects that had crashed and burned. Um, and he, I think, had... Flamingo s- Feather and No Bait for the Judge? No Bail for the Judge. No no Bail for the Judge. <laughs> um, I, th- I think he had someone that basically like looked for kind of compelling premises for him and presented them to him. And so uh, the story, um, the actual original Psycho book had kind of made its way to Hitchcock and Hitchcock wanted to do it. And of course in the sixties, this is a time where there's a lot of things that are not allowed in film mm-hmm. and can't flush a toilet. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Paramount was basically like, no, we're not yeah. doing this. This is not happening. So Hitchcock bought the novel for $9,500. Thank you, Robert Block. <laughs> uh, yeah, which is... Significantly less than $50 million. Yeah. <laughs> On top of that, he ordered every copy of the book to be bought up because he didn't want anyone to read the book and know how the book ended. (laughs) So, and this is Hitchcock paying for this himself. Like, this is his own money he's shelling out. So he proposes the movie again to Paramount, and Paramount's like, we're not giving you the budget that we normally give you. Just know this movie's going to be a flop. No one's going to watch yeah, this. Yeah, people had all but given up on Hitchcock at yeah. this point in his career. Um, so Hitchcock said that he would make it in black and white because it was cheaper to make it in black and white. <laughs> so that's why it ended up in black and white. And he initially proposed that he would use the film crew from his TV series, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, yep. so that it would be cheaper to make. And Paramount was like, no, um, still too much money. Our stages are booked. You can't use them. Whatever. Not not paying for it. Figure it out. Hitchcock funded the project himself. <laughs> so that's why it's so cheaply made. And used his own crew from Shamley Productions and said he would, instead of taking his usual director's fee, which probably worked out best for him, because uh, his usual director's fee was 250000 he said he would take a 60% stake of the film's negative if they would just distribute the movie when he got done with it. God damn. So Hitchcock walked away being a 60% shareholder of this movie. Of $50 million. <laughs> That's box office. <laughs> Um, so I'd say he His estate is still making probably that much every goddamn year. So yeah, I would say he made out just fine. But yeah, the movie's in 
black and white. This and is music to be murdered. By. <laughs> <laughs> was shot pretty much with his own crew um, because you know it was cheaper, and uh, he was already comfortable working with them. Uh, it was independently produced and financed by Hitchcock. It was shot at Review Studios, which is the same location that his television show was shot at. Mm-hmm. Um, it was shot on a budget of 807000 is what this says. Um, yeah, so... He basically said, go fuck yourself, I know what I'm doing. <laughs> it's still a lot of money of your own personal <coughs> money for the time. It's a lot of money now for the 60s. It's definitely yeah. a lot of money to throw out a project. But yeah, I, I do appreciate the tenacity behind that. He bought the rights to the book before he even had permission to make yeah. it. Bought up the book. But yeah, <laughs> bought up the book, So which is good and bad because... That's more money for the writer, but also now nobody can read the book. (laughs) Well, in the 60s, everybody was reading, you know, like more people read than actually went to the theater. So he was canceling his competition. He's basically like, if you want to hear this story, I know that the first edition, probably the second edition have sold out and like the stories out there. But if you want to know every twist, now I own the twists. You know, when the Coen brothers made No Country for Old Men... They didn't announce that they're making No Country for Old Men. They didn't buy up Cormac McCarthy's rights, but you're going to see a Cormac Brothers production, which is easier and more accessible than reading the novel in today's America. But back then, people would be like, why am I going to spend $5 on a movie? I can spend 10 cents on a book. (laughs) I I would be curious to know how successful this book in particular was, though, because I don't know that people were necessarily buying... These type of books, weren't they like kind of like dime detective novels and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Robert Block was a dime store novelist, so like he he wouldn't have... I mean, he was probably over the fucking moon to make the nine grand that he made, but probably would have liked to readjust his contract once he realized Hitchcock was the guy buying that novel. (laughs) If he he didn't give him a kickback after it was as successful as it was, he's kind of a jerk. Well, he's reportedly kind of a jerk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Speaking of protecting the ending, though, um, if you watch the edition that we have anyway, like it's got special features on it. Yeah, anniversary edition. Yeah, you can see their promotional material for the movie. (laughs) Where he walks Um, you through the entirety of the set. (laughs) So Hitchcock did pretty much all of the promotional material himself, and he forbade his two leading actors to do any TV, radio, or print interviews (laughs) about the movie because he was afraid they would reveal the ending. Anthony Perkins is going to go, like, it wasn't me, it was my mother. (laughs) (laughs) He's like, these idiots are going to give away the film. (laughs) So the reason Hitchcock does all the promo work is because he didn't trust anybody. (laughs) Anybody in the fucking slightest. Um, so how do you what do you think about that? Because Hitchcock has something of a, as we've moved forward in generation, a would you say sour? Um, like he was not the nicest man yeah. on the set to work with. He was a grumpy old English guy who was fat, according to the biography that I read for about a quarter of the way. Because <laughs> he was like he was a fat bastard. It's like why are you telling me that? So I gave up. I I mean I think it must have been incredibly 
successful for this film in particular. I, I think being so guarded about all of your work probably dooms some of your work, but I, yeah. I, I could see why... Like, he didn't do that with the birds. He didn't do that with Vertigo. Yeah. He, yeah. Well, I could, I could see why with this film in particular, it felt like a secret he needed to guard so closely, because there's a lot going on in this movie that wasn't really considered... Um... He broke barriers. With yeah, him. He like killed his main girl right up top. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff in this movie wasn't really appropriate at the time. Mm. Like we were just hitting a point where like skin could be shown, like unmarried couples in the same bed together, yeah. and like all this stuff. The that... shower scene got sent to the critics like five times. <laughs> yeah, and that's actually um, a thing I have in here. And like the toilet flushing, like there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie that's very sensational. So the mm-hmm. sensational advertising of it. Makes sense. I I think maybe uh, Hitchcock was a little bit more paranoid than necessary. <laughs> um, but yeah, the shower sequence. The shower sequence made of Hershey's syrup. <laughs> it was made of Hershey's syrup, and that's still how I do my fake blood today. Um, so the censor's in charge of enforcing the production production code which was kind of on its way out at this time yeah that's pre-mpaa um, right <laughs> uh yes i think so yeah. uh yeah the rating board um insisted that they could see one of the main actress's boobs while she was in the shower mm-hmm. and they were like you have to fix this you cannot show her boob hitchcock literally sat on the print for a couple of days didn't change anything at all and resubmitted it <laughs> And every single one of the censors switched their opinion of it. The censors who had originally thought they had seen her boob was like, oh, no, he fixed it. The censors who initially was like, you can't see boob. They were like, there's definitely a boob in this cut, though. (laughs) So, um, yeah, uh, they passed the film uh, after the director did remove one shot that showed her or the butt of her stand in, not her. Um, And let him keep the shower scene uh, if he promised to reshoot the opening. Mm-hmm. And uh, the board members did not show up. He did not reshoot the opening. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> The ball's on Hitchcock. <laughs> so he said, go fuck yourself quite kindly. <laughs> so we got one more note here, and then I've got a, the, the big question I like to ask you. Mm-hmm. So what's our final note? Um, just an interesting, which I've got actually a couple of techniques that I just thought were interesting. Um, he filmed pretty much the entire movie on a 50 millimeter and 35 millimeter lens, um, which is intended to simulate the perspective that we see with the actual human eye. Uh, Does he give it like a bobble? No, that's a wide lens. Um, so the millimeter of the lens determines the crop factor Mm -hmm. so a 55 is kind of mid-range and a 35 is a little bit tighter in um and yeah it just basically simulates the perspective of literally what you're seeing out of your eye right now like all of this out here isn't really something you're seeing you're seeing this box right here in front of you so it it gives you peripheral vision no in a way no it literally <laughs> well like i'm looking at you but like the door to my right and the coat hanging off the wall to you my left they're they're not in total focus they're not in the shot at all all that would be out of the shot oh, okay. so basically just what i'm focused yeah on. so basically the human gotcha. perspective is meant to be 
what your literal focus is on. So there's probably about a box this size in front of you. Like if you just like hold a four your hands by out four. Yeah. Yeah, that you can very clearly see distinctly this is um, your periphery in front of you. So mm-hmm. the size of that lens simulates kind of a similar filling. So if I put a 50 millimeter on my camera and stuck it right here and pointed it at you, in theory, it would kind of look about how I would think it would look if I was sitting here myself. Just focused on Yeah, just focused on you. So, yeah, he shot it that way to give the intention of involving the audience. So it felt like the audience was kind of moving through the movie. So um, I think he did use like a wide shot once or twice, but it was almost predominantly shot that way. So the whole movie feels kind of like you're in the room too. What are the benefits of that? Um, Outside of the audience feeling like, and I guess to do the entire movie that way, that is the major benefit is you kind of give the audience a sense of they're also a character in the mm-hmm. movie. Um, Does it give it a sense of immediacy? Do you think that it helped him with his sense of tension? I, so. I Because it's so dialed in, your mind can't get distracted from what's immediate. Maybe yes and no. Um, I, I do think wide shots tend to let... People's eyes wander a bit more, and it's a bit more about kind of setting up the scenery than the feeling of mm-hmm. the scene. Um, or, you know, wide shots can actually be fairly isolating, too. It can make you feel kind of like you're lost in this situation. Um, so they, they can set a mood as well. But I I would argue restricting yourself to a set camera lens kind of restricts putting urgency on specific things like you do see the extreme close-up of the eye Mm -hmm. after marion gets killed so there is this urgency in this crime that's just happened but i would argue yeah like if i shot an entire movie just on a 50 millimeter i mean granted i could put the camera physically closer to what i'm filming and it would change the way that it looked but to me Changing and knowing when to change between wide shots, mid shots, and close-ups creates a level of importance to what you're filming. Yeah, so, much in the way that, like, when we talk about writing length of sentence back to back, really adds an immediacy to what you're reading, and it's yeah. the reason why you don't want to put a book down. Yeah. So I, I think I think it can. I'm not saying that it can't. I think it can cause a sense of not being able to escape because you feel like you're permanently, yeah, just stuck. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I have developed quite a love for the wide lens Mm -hmm. in more recent years and like knowing when to pull back and when to, you know, drag the audience back in. Long sentence, short sentence, clip sentence. I, I personally think that's an art in itself. Like knowing when your audience needs to be close. Not that Hitchcock doesn't understand that. He obviously does. Mm-hmm. But knowing when you should give something a little room to breathe and when you need to choke hold the audience, you know, I, I think there's yeah. an art to that itself. So I, I probably wouldn't shoot a movie that way. But I don't know. I'm not Hitchcock. <laughs> I'm not a director. That's why I was asking from a director because he, he was a director. I mean, he wasn't a writer. So I appreciate his films because of tension. Like mm-hmm. I, I love Hitchcock films because he nails at least once in every single one of his movies this like grip that he knows that he has on the audience mm-hmm. and the audience doesn't know that he has mm-hmm. on them yet. I think... Like you think you think you're in the grip in Psycho like he has you in the trap sequence 
but really, you're dead in the shower scene. Mm. <laughs> I think the true... When the camera tilts up and changes angles on her eye and creates the spiral around mm. her eyeball. <laughs> That's actually something I want to talk about, too. Um, I think the true beauty to Hitchcock as a director probably isn't necessarily specifically just the way he shoots well i mean he's not the one literally shooting it he had a cameraman yeah. but the the way that he has stuff shot i don't think is necessarily where the entirety of his strength is i think it's a mixture of how he has it shot how he has it lit how the music plays out how fast the pacing is i think hitchcock had a really powerful understanding of tension mm-hmm. as a whole um so i i there are shots that I would look at in Psycho and be like, oh, that's kind of bland. Yeah. But the moment, the lighting, the music, the pacing, like all put together with the shot is a really powerful emotion that you're getting from the movie. Yeah. So, and he was a kid in London when it was being bombed, like mm-hmm. during World War One, leading up to World War Two. Like, <laughs> okay. he, he had a sense of trauma that was, as a foreigner, foreign to American mm-hmm. horror film. Which is kind of interesting, I think, watching it from today's perspective. Because back in the 60s, I probably would have been like, this is amazing. Yeah, this is terrifying. (laughs) Much like our parents think of Nightmare on Elm Street. And then mm -hmm. you watch it and his arms look all goofy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But like even with like Bates Motel, I think way more times when we were watching Bates Motel, I was like, oh, that's a beautiful shot. Mm -hmm. And like, I don't think I said it maybe but one time while we were watching Psycho. But the movie itself is powerful. And Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I... I think that's, for me anyway, the strength in Hitchcock is he understood the art of it. Yeah. Like, as a whole. So, yeah. I I personally probably would have shot it different, but I probably would not have ended up with what Hitchcock (laughs) ended up with either. It's a master class (laughs) for black and white film, if nothing else. Um, Just a couple of other little... Not a master class in green screen. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Yeah, no. There's a couple of other interesting little things. Um, Hitchcock is fairly infamous for he does not do retakes. Mm-hmm. And they had to do uh, a few retakes in this movie because he wanted it to be the way he wanted it to be. So um, in the shower scene where they were trying to get the spiraling of the eye, apparently water kept splashing in her eye and she was blinking. Really? And- yeah, they kept having to, like, because they couldn't get the timing of the swirl while focusing, right? So they had to reshoot that several times. And there were a couple of other things they had to shoot a few times. Um, the shower scene in particular had 77 different camera angles <laughs> to get that shot. <laughs> the complete scene is three minutes long and includes 50 different cuts. <laughs> So Hitchcock was not playing around that day. <laughs> he was like, we got work to do. <laughs> and um, there's a scene where it's straight from, uh, like the camera looks like it's looking up at the shower head and water spraying yeah. down on the shower head. And back then, uh, cameras were not weather sealed. <laughs> there was not weather sealed cases you could put on your camera. So what they did to work around this, which I think is kind of genius, um, The camera had to be equipped with a long lens so they could put the body of the camera further away from it. 
And then the inner holes, like the center holes of the shower yeah. head, were all covered up so water wasn't spraying out of them. So they would just fall around the camera? Yeah, and they placed, what? <laughs> they placed the camera intentionally at a far enough distance and angled it so that the water would spray down around the camera. He's got a goddamn mathematician doing <laughs> Pythagorean theorem or some shit on that. Yeah, thing. so the water was spraying down and around the camera so wow. the camera itself wouldn't get wet. But I think that's all my fun facts. That's fucking incredible. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, if someone tells you no, you figure out how to get it done. <laughs> <laughs> well, my my big closing question, as it is normally when we watch some of these older films, and this one is a two-pronged question because this film is currently... I, I, they're not going to be able to cancel Psycho. You what are they mad something. about? Um, well, I'm going to give you the first part that I always give you, and then I'll tell you what they're mad about. So my first question is, how do you feel um, as far as progressivism? Uh, this film deals with male-female dynamic. And my second question, which is what they're mad about, is Norman Bates is trans. That's what they're mad about. They feel that Norman Bates is a negative... Um, oh, Dean was... That's where my theory comes in, but they feel that he's a negative representation because it portrays all trans people as serial killers. Oh, that's Agreed. Um, okay, so second question out the way. We could write them off. Don't cancel Psycho. First film, or first question. Well, no, we should address that, I guess. Um, the male-female dynamic in the film. I think it's silly to be angry about negative interpretations of any culture because there are negative interpretations of every culture there are serial killer straight white men there are serial killer straight white women there we watch movies on this show all the time where it's like oh we had bipolar disorder turns out it was ghosts (laughs) (laughs) yeah there there are people of all races religions creeds minorities whatever Mm -hmm. um that have uh, people that have done bad things because mm-hmm. that is an affliction of the mind almost always. <laughs> and the mind is not based on the color, race, religion, or sexual yeah. orientation of the person. Um, so yeah, that's silly. Uh, I, Dahmer was not evil because he was gay. Dahmer happened to be evil and gay. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, and it's a fact. Uh, trauma has an intimate effect on us. So I have, you know, my own particular quirks and Mm -hmm. Brett has his own particular quirks and everyone out there who has experienced traumatic things do and um, basing Bates off of a real person like Gein, you know, Gein was someone who was traumatized on an intimate level Mm -hmm. emotionally um, by the people that were supposed to have loved him the most. And then, he may have also had a pre-existing mental disorder that, you know, caused, yeah, yeah, caused disassociative. Yeah. Yeah. It caused that to be a more extreme reaction. And if he was grappling with his own feelings, sexual or otherwise, the idea that he might've done things like that isn't so far fetched. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the idea that there are people out there that do things that reflect on any culture of any kind in weird ways is silly to be mad at. They exist. (laughs) And I don't find it to be exploitive. Um, They in fact correct him because they're like, Oh, he 
was a crossdresser. And mm-hmm. he's like, no, he wasn't. No, he wasn't. He was he had a dissociative personality. <laughs> yeah, <and living. laughs> if anything, I feel like that's progressive that they had mm-hmm. the cop figure, whoever it was, be like, oh, he was just a weirdo. And the doctor was like, no. He has a mental disorder. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly <laughs> on that point. I don't find that problematic. Um, what about the way that women are portrayed in Psycho? I I would argue maybe maybe Marion's character has moments where she seems a bit stronger and a bit more independent. They mm-hmm. are fairly fleeting though. She's stealing money specifically for her male lead in this movie and she dies immediately and her sister is a fairly insignificant character. Mm-hmm. Um Sam's character is the one who's getting everything done. The detective character is, you know, oh, don't worry, honey, you just sit back and I'll take care of it. Um, I'm not surprised by that for a movie from the 60s, so I don't think that's terribly offensive or something you can really get that mad at. Um, I think it's weird to look at works of art that came from a very specific section of culture and be offended by them. Mm -hmm. if you and I were alive in the 60s, I'd probably be a housewife and you would go to work and I would stay home and make dinner. Not so likely. I'd still probably be a penniless writer and you'd be like, why don't you get a job at the factory? I don't know why I feel like everybody from the 50s talked like that. But, but the point is, I, I probably would be the housewife type person, you know, yeah. like back then that was We would have been common. our grandparents. Yeah, and not that women didn't work at all back then, but back then that was more common and... I, I think it's absurd to be mad at someone reflecting the culture of the day. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I don't think any of the women in this movie are particularly strong. I think the difference in Bates Motel, which it's it's a bit silly to take that spin, but the difference there is kind of compelling. Like, she is initially this weak female character who steals the money for um, the guy, learns out the guy's a jerk, and goes yeah. about her day, and presumably lives a better life um and so yeah you do have reflections in Bates Motel where you can see they're trying to be more conscious of that but again Bates Motel was made in an entirely different time frame well, can this I movie was. can I bring up like one thing one particular scene uh, not the trap scene which I've you're lucky I've not written down and quoted <laughs> but I have brought it up a bunch so my apologies um the reason Marion takes the money do you think that was a progressive move on Hitchcock's part? Because she takes the money from the creepy Weinstein character where he's like, you know, sexualizing Marion and Marion's like, well, fuck you. I'm out of here. Do you think that would have been a brave move on Hitchcock's part to show America? Hey, these are the people that these girls are trying to deal with. And then she gets murdered as a result. Or do you think that he was just showing the times I think as he they was just were? Showing the times because I don't think many people. Um, maybe this is a bit of a bias. Yeah, no, opinion. I'm looking at it <laughs> retroactively as everybody else is. I'm just asking. I don't think many people of the male gender would have gone and watched this movie at the time and felt like that guy was being a jerk. I think they would have been like, "Well, this bimbo ran off with his money." <laughs> so, um, no, I, I personally. But I'm a progressive 2021 male <laughs> who looks back and goes, I think Hitchcock was talking about the commentary I of I, I, cause I, I think sexuality Hitchcock, in America as an Englishman. <laughs> I think Hitchcock had a lot of characters in his work that were kind of stereotypical for yeah. the times. And for me, that scene is just, 
stereotypical. And then Marion takes the money because she wants to help out her lover and she wants mm-hmm. to get married. And that's a very stereotypical reason. And the only reason she decides she's going to go back is because another male changes her opinion and is like, oh, you know, we've, you set your own traps and... Norman initially is the person who makes her realize she wants to go back. Like, she doesn't come to that conclusion on her own. She doesn't mm. have really any opinions of her own at all. Yeah. Um, Norman. Like, she doesn't her. realize off the advice that Norman's giving that, like, oh my God, I could actually do this. Norman has an, oh my God, I can actually get out of here. And she doesn't. Yeah. And. I've never seen it that way. I think think the scene is necessary for Mm -hmm. the tension of that moment, but Norman comes and, like, feeds her a sandwich and stuff, and then they have that conversation in his parlor. But again, it's... She is kind of the damsel in distress the whole time. Like, oh, you don't have dinner? Let me feed you. Let me take care of you. And, like... Yeah, I I never at any point get a sensation of Marion as being an individual. Mm -hmm. Um... Marion is a device to move, move Norman's story forward. And then cool. the sister is basically a device to get Sam to go to the house to ultimately capture the bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right, because her sister isn't even like the strong character on the detective team. She's put off. Yeah, and she like he tells her to just sit and wait. Mm-hmm. And then ultimately he comes back. And yeah, she is the one who finds Mother in the basement. But she would have got stabbed <laughs> uh, if Sam hadn't come down there. And she just stands by while he's struggling with the knife and doesn't even try to help. So no, I I don't think it's a good representation <laughs> of strong female characters. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not mad argu- at it, though. I'm, I'm not mm-hmm. arguing that it is, you know, for you and for the audience. I'm, I'm, I just like asking you that question when we watch movies that are 30 plus years old. You know, like, where do you feel like the strong female lead finally steps into our, our cinema? So I don't think it's even happened now. I can give you a pushback on that. I think we're, <laughs> I think we're for sure moving that way. Yeah. I think there's still a fair amount of resistance to a true, strong, mm-hmm. independent female lead. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. But like you even, guys don't have your Marlon Brando yet. Well, even movies like Laura Croft, um, Tomb Raider is probably a good example of that starting to happen and that starting to shift that way, or even like Angelina Jolie's movies, but. A lot of those movies still have this male side character that's there kind of moving Mm -hmm. the story forward. A lot of these female characters don't really do anything alone. What's that test? I can't remember the name of where you have to like check off if it's a proper representation. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And I, I, I think we have significantly better representation now than we used to. And Norma in Bates Motel is an incredibly compelling mm-hmm. character, but Norma doesn't exist without Norman, and I think that's true of a lot of female leads. They don't exist without the male counterpart that's a part of the story that's moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I would argue, not that there's none at all out there, but there's not a lot of great examples out there even now. Um, but we're doing better. <laughs> <laughs> we're getting there. <laughs> We're getting there all the way across the board with race and sexuality and gender equality. And, um, I, 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 yeah, I'm looking forward as to what's to come, but I do like asking you that question. Do you have any final thoughts? And then I'll go make you some Cornish game hens and we'll completely flip the role reversals of the races and the religions <laughs> in the 1950s. Because I'm making Cornish game hens tonight, ladies and gentlemen. 
having some Cabernet Sauvignon, <laughs> or however you say that. Um, I think for me, the movie is really good, and I I think the movie will always hold up. I think it will always be a classic cinema film mm. that people look back on and love. And if, you know, we were going to show this movie to our children, I would for sure show them the movie first and then maybe yeah. do Bates Motel afterwards and then come back and revisit the movie. Cause I think it's a movie that stands on its own quite well. Um, it's like streetcar named desire. It's like one of those. <laughs> <laughs> but I also think it to some extent speaks to the power of, um, the influence art has in general because watching this movie so many years later it's not the movie that i remember mm-hmm. um i definitely remember it being more frightening um more, violent. more tense more violent um i remember mother being a much bigger part and much more frightening and maybe i don't know maybe i saw psycho too and maybe i'm confusing it with mm-hmm. that but i i just remember mother being such a bigger influence it's like jaws and, the shark was supposed to be there so much longer <laughs> than it was actually there yeah and I, I think for me the spirit of psycho and the spirit of mother and of norman hung around more than the movie itself did so mm-hmm. i i think this movie is kind of a powerful representation of how moving art can be like we take the bits of it that are scary or exciting or intimidating or whatever for us. And that's the part that sticks with us. Um, and then it kind of moves us forward to create our own things from there. Um, yeah. And I think it's an interesting commentary on how we can perceive art even way later on. Fuck. Yeah. I, I love this goddamn movie. I, I, <laughs> there's nothing that I've that that I need to say that I haven't said a thousand fucking times. Uh, I think it's incredible. Um, no closing thoughts. Anthony Perkins, he's a handsome motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> he's a very scrawny dude. Very scrawny dude. Um, no, um, everything that I've ever wanted to say about this film in every certain way is caught in that that the trap sequence. It, that for me is one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened in cinema history. It's better than, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I've never even seen that movie. I haven't, but I've seen that scene. It's better than, you know, like the Citizen Kane ending that I've never seen. It's it's better than Apocalypse Now, you know, Masta, you know, like that whole sequence. It's It's better than baptism by fire and the godfather like that that i i i don't know i love fucking psycho (laughs) i'm excited to go make my wife some dinner do we have any plugs love Uh, they're in the description they're in the description team i love you sweetheart and i love you guys and i love you baby i will talk to you on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, maybe even Monday. Depends on when we get around to it. <laughs> that panning sound? That's Jax. No, that's Norman. He's looking at the people. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>